I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. Oh, and I've been waiting for this day for quite a while. Michelle Hart is here. Her fiction has appeared in Joyland and Electric Literature, and she has written nonfiction for Catapult, Nylon, The Rumpus, and The New Yorker Online. Previously, she was the assistant books editor at Oh, the Oprah Magazine and Oprah Daily. She received her MFA from Rutgers, Newark, and lives in New Jersey. Her debut novel is called We Do What We Do in the Dark. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Maris, I've been looking forward to this for a really, really long time, too, so thank you. I, I feel like it's important for listeners to know that I met Michelle ages ago when there's this phenomenon in book publishing called the um, marketing lunch, I guess. Publicity lunch? Yeah. <laughs> and various people who care about books, including freelancers and editors and staff writers are invited to like kind of get a glimpse into the world of what an imprint is going to be publishing. And some of them are really, really fun. And some of them are not as fun. (laughs) But I always knew if I was sitting next to Michelle, I would have fun. (laughs) So I want to start out by saying, by asking you, was there anything from those from all of those lunches that you gleaned about the process of publishing that kind of sticks with you now? That's a good question. I guess I guess one of the things that's sort of strange, you know, is, is to to be on this other side, right? And and I always kind of hoped and imagined I would be on this side of the the publishing process, you know, to be the author rather than to be the person covering the authors. Though I I loved my job, um, but it was you know I 
every day I woke up with some sort of sense of imposter syndrome, you know, like it's sort of like, do I, would I belong on the same shelf as Amy Hempel? Like, no way, right? Like, um, and, you know, and then I met Amy Hempel, you know, and then I started attending lunches of authors who I had admired from afar and, and journalists I had admired from afar, including you, Maris, you know, and, and so it was, it was, if I've, if I've gleaned anything from those lunches, I think it's something like, um, we're all just regular people, <laughs> you know, we're all just like kind of bumbling along together, you know, there's really, you know, I, I often look at as published authors as having their shit together and they just really don't, um, you know, and, and, you know, I, it took me like 10, 10 years to write this book. Um, and, you know, I, when I'm talking about it with people, it's like, I wrote it yesterday <laughs> and I experienced that a lot with when I, when I would meet authors in person, you know, I would expect them, especially like, you know, as a, as a journalist or as a book reviewer, you know, talking to authors that they would be like experts in their own material, Right. Um, but that's so like was not the case. Uh, you know, everybody was just kind of like, I don't know, it's a book. You can read it however you want it. And it's kind of freeing, you know. Uh, so I guess if I cleaned anything, it, it would be that. Yeah. So you, so maybe, you know, a little bit more how to um, talk about your own work, which I can only imagine is terrifying. Um, it's weird. Not, yeah. I mean, not just imagine like I've, I've spoken to enough authors who are nervous about it to know that that's a thing. <laughs> right. So this debut is so lovely. Um, I love the sentences so much on a, on a sentence level, but I, I, I want to start out by talking about, well, the relationship, the relationship of the book. Um, so your heroine, Mallory is a freshman in college and she has an affair with a middle-aged woman who is a professor at that college, but not her professor, which I guess is like sort of important. And um, she's referred to, we know that Mallory knows her name, but you <laughs> yeah. as the author refer to her only as the woman. Um, and we know she's German, we know she's married, we know she's kind of a stoic person and not gushy, but why, why does she not receive a name? Yeah, I, I thought about that a lot, you know, when I was right. So the, the, the book used to be a short story um, that I published with Electric Lit. Um, and when I first wrote the story, um, none of the characters uh, had names. It was Mallory was the girl and the woman was the woman. Sure. And um, I always liked the, like the story sort of fairy tale lilt that, that it gave that, you know, where it sort of felt like this sort of archetypal, um, almost fable like, quality to to the story where it was just about a woman and a girl you know it was just sort of those were their roles in the story and it allowed me to sort of play with 
like what those roles mean. Um, Halima Marcus, who published a story, uh, she said something really, really brilliant about, about it when she published it, when she said that um, the story is about a girl becoming a woman and a woman becoming a girl. Um, and I've always really loved that. Like she just got it so well, perfectly. Um, and that's what, you know, allowing the characters to not have names, that's what kind of what it did, right? Where it sort of allowed you, it called attention to their titles, their state in life, their relation to each other. Um, that's a lot harder to do when you're expanding it into a book, right? Sure. You know, and I know that a lot of, you know, a lot of novels have nameless narrators, um, you know, and, but since the book isn't in first person, that's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to justify that. And so I think I landed on Mallory as a name, um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think one day I was walking and trying to think about the book and I came across a duck and I was like, oh, mallard, right? <laughs> like, like sort of, you know, like really stupid. Um, I don't know, like the duck like sort of felt so innocent, but also a little mean, like, I don't know, like the, the mallard had personality and, and sort of, you know, and then I think like not too long after that, or um, at the same time, I'm a big um, women's soccer fan. And one of my favorite players is Mallory Pugh. And um, so it just sort of, you know, came to me that to name her that. Um, but when it came time to name the woman, it was really tough, because like, there, there's, naming is kind kind of dichotomous in the sense that like on the one hand names carry a lot of meaning right like you know um I remember like being in um 15th uh, um um 15th grade wow really um like sophomore year in high school and and um reading the catcher in the rye and we spent like a whole class talking about what the name Holden Caulfield means like what it, what is a call and what is it Holden hold you know and so like you know being being an English major really makes you think about like the choices uh, that you know authors make of like naming and how significant it is um, you know so like there was that and like you know what could what name could I possibly give this woman to sort of convey that you know sense of importance and and then I looked at like you know German first names and and I always kind of had a name for her I won't say what it is but um okay, well, no. you know <laughs> but it but you know like it was just it, nothing really worked right um and you know I went back and read the short story and then I just sort of realized that like for Mallory like the woman would always be the woman right like she would always just be that for you know no matter what name she had been given um you know for her uh, the woman is something that Mallory aspires to be right that she's sort of like the platonic ideal of womanhood for Mallory right not for readers and not for me or not for anybody else right but for Mallory specifically um and so uh it, you know it, it 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 gave her a sort of um it, that actually not naming her gave her sort of more significance I think I think so too. And I, and I love the way you describe how Mallory is affected by her. Like you, you talk about the extreme carefulness with which Mallory conducts herself, like, like drawing with no eraser and only one piece of paper. And it's like, oh, you have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and another detail I love, which is like, so like, I would have done this at age 17, 18, 
Um, she's invited to the woman's home. She knows the woman is German. She knows she should bring something. So she Googled German wine <laughs> and brought a Riesling, which the woman, of course, I mean, like bitchily, but rightfully so, was like, this is very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> No one has a business like yours with all its strengths and challenges. To succeed, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform for where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find greater talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. Indeed does the hard work for you. When you pay to post a job, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Maris. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. Pay per qualified applicant not available for all users. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Tell me about capturing that naivete in a character who we will see progress beyond that point yeah yeah no that's that's good um you know (laughs) I probably would have also done the, the googling the wine thing right um and to be honest, I still don't really know my white wines that well, you know, even in my thirties, um, you know, so I wouldn't have really understood that like, oh, there are some white, like not all white wines taste the same, um, you know, that like a, a Riesling is different from a Gewürztraminer, you know, um, something I still am trying to figure out. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it was sort of, it was sort of fun to, to, um, write a character who was like really cunning and knowing in certain ways and aware of the world and aware of herself and just sort of aware of certain things, um, but like totally ignorantly unaware of other things, right? Um, and so, you know, and I think that that's like, that's definitely like young adulthood. Uh, I think that, you know, um, for, for whatever reason, there are things where we're very porous at that time, right? Where sort of some things catch, some things don't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, and, and the, <laughs> thank you for calling attention to the eraser line, you know, like I, um, and, you know, I think this, that applies to like romantic relationships, certainly, but also sort of, you know, mentorship, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, mentee mentor relationships and boss employee relationships, right? Where when we, when we're faced with somebody who we think of as like 
kind of like more significant than us, right? And for whatever reason, um, there's a sense of like, oh my God, everything I say is gonna need to be super important. It's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be taken a certain way. It's going to be, you know, and the reality is, it's like, it doesn't, it probably doesn't matter like how she phrases things or, or you know, or anybody in that situation, right? Like um, it's probably an overthinking uh, on her part. But you know, when there, there are times when like you know I'll be talking to uh like a writer who I, I really admire um and I will realize at, only afterward that like I don't really remember what I said um because I was I was so conscious in that moment of saying the the right thing that I actually and weirdly enough just had this experience where I don't actually remember what I said um you know and so I think that that especially comes from that that sort of um power dynamic in in a relationship where it's sort of yeah absolutely and I feel like the book is so good about noticing this thing that we do all the time which is like you think you have a bigger role for the most part in someone else's story than perhaps you might yeah. um and and how much they're thinking about what exactly you said every now and then you know um, right but i love that and i also you see mallory kind of looking to this woman for like how to be a person in the world right and there are some things that really do seem wonderful about the relationship, especially at first, that this is a very 17 year old thing to say, but like <laughs> secret relationships are fun. Like that, that, that fills it with uh, drama and excitement. And there is something exciting about that. And even just the idea of like feeling lustful and having that lust being shared and acknowledged and fulfilled mm -hmm. tell me about kind of parceling through the more negative aspects of this relationship that um that you cover so brilliantly yeah, it was it was a tricky balance to strike, right? Um, especially because um, you know I started I started writing this book um, way before like Me Too, right? And so um, it, I I had been writing the relationship a certain way, and and sort of you know um, the dynamic sort of um, you know in a certain way, and then you know 2017, 2018, 2019 was was when I was sort of um, wrapping up the book, uh, you know, and it just, it just sort of struck me um, that I, I, I would be hesitant to call this like a me too novel. I don't, I don't really know what that means. I don't, I don't know if it is that, um, though I'm sure there are some reader out there who will make that connection. Um, but I do, I did realize that, you know, it, it participated, this narrative, narrative participated in, in parts of that, 
conversation, right? Where, you know, like the role of autonomy in a relationship between two people who are very uh, different in age and station in life, right? Um, and, and but the thing about Me Too that really struck me was uh, the way that it, it, it sort of caused uh, women and, and other people to sort of recontextualize the past relationships, right? We suddenly had like new words and phrases and experiences that we could then use to look back and say, oh, actually that was kind of like, like this, right? Like that's sort of what's going on here. Um, and, you know, so then it, it didn't really change much about the dynamic that I was writing and how I was writing it, but it, it gave me a sense of like what the stakes are, right? And so like, it was important for me and without spoiling anything about like the end of the book, you know, it was really important for me to uh, end it with somebody else asking about the relationship, right? Because it's, it's essentially for, for most of the book, it's like a two person play, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's just sort of these two people alone in a room together, um, you know, and, and um, the, the, the affair is kind of like a story that only two people know, right? And that's the appeal of it, as you alluded to earlier, right? That's like, that's the fun thing about affairs sometimes where it's just sort of like the superiority that you feel about knowing something that's going on that other people don't know, right? Um, and so then it was, it was important to sort of say, you know, um, well, like what happens when somebody else impresses their opinion of this relationship? upon Mallory, you know, I, and, and I think that Mallory would be really, really hesitant and reluctant to define the relationship that she has uh, with the woman as a Me Too relationship, right, as, or as something that sort of conforms to the contours of what we, what we mm -hmm. think of as that kind of relationship, even though there is a solid case to be made that there are similarities, right? You know, that she was a student and the woman was a professor, though, as you said, and it's a very important distinction that she's not Mallory's professor, um, you know, and just what does it mean to be a 40-something a, a in a relationship with an 18-year-old? You know, if that, was, if that was a man in a relationship with a woman, a, a, a young woman, you know, we would immediately, you know, toss up the red flags, right? Um, so yeah, you know, um, it was it was a really tricky balance to strike. You know, it. it I think that the woman. Um, I think it's questionable, right? I think that like, and and I want people to question it, and I did too mm -hmm. at every turn. Like, it, it. This book is not at all meant to be didactic and to sort of say like this. This is this is wrong what these two are doing and how they're behaving. Um, but it's not right. right. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's sort of like that, that um, one of my mentor, Akhil Sharma has this thing. He said this thing about his, his, his novel family life. Um, and the, the interviewer asked him, you know, it took him like 12 years to write that book. And an interviewer asked him, um, you know, like, how did you know the book was done? Right. And he said this really brilliant thing that he said, I knew the book was done when everybody was wrong and everybody was right. Mm. Right. And so, yeah. Right. Like it's so and that that kind of, you know, really helped propel me along, you know, and sort of, um, you know, we we all think we're the heroes of our stories. Right. Um, you know, and then we think that other people are the villains of the story or the other people are the to use video game terminology, the NPCs, the non playable characters. Right. <laughs> um, 
but you know everybody you know has is has their own version of of the story and 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 maybe Mallory's is not right uh it's also not wrong mm -hmm. um and anybody's take on Mallory's story is not necessarily right or wrong right like so like anybody questioning this relationship as being bad you know um as I'm sure people will you know I mean there's still there's people a lot of people say that like the relationship in call me by your name for instance is like a bad relationship just because of the age disparity um you know it, you know there will always be people who sort of re read it as sort of black and white um and so it was it was really important to maintain that gray area-ness of it yeah and and i think it's such a good contrast you talk about how yeah teachers need this course but but also it's so good for writers to be studying how to tell us a, a story so succinctly maybe the better question is like talk about the the distinctions you wanted to make or, or like the themes you wanted to carry with with children's literature yeah i mean i think that for me like what was interesting about so a character like the woman being a children's book author right like we sort of think of children's book authors as like being good with kids right mm -hmm. that's kind of like the base thing like idea that we have in, in our in our heads right um and like you know i i think i was i had read a profile in the new yorker of maurice sendak um who who obviously is like the kids book like right the picture book mm -hmm. author like you when you think of picture books you think of where the wild things are and maurice sendak and it's just such a brilliant book um and this new yorker profile was sort of talking about how he was a childless gay guy um which i just i never would have imagined the man who wrote where the wild things are was for a gay and be childless you know like how how did you know like obviously all adults are kids at one point like i mean <laughs> right um but you know like it, he just had such a mastery like my our childhoods were so defined by max right and the rumpus and then and, and stuff like that and and you know he he had made the quintessential kid story um and didn't have kids uh so it was sort of it, it was that that was sort of interesting for me to 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 sort of try to incorporate in some way right um and then just you know like i and the woman is also childless and you know, I think um, what draws the woman to picture books and what draws her to the artistry of picture books is sort of representing childhood, right? Like we're sort of revisiting childhood, which is something that I think the woman doesn't think she had um, what a childhood mm -hmm. um, in much the same way that Mallory's childhood was very, very complicated by illness in the family um, and the way that that sort of prevented her from having, um, I guess, quote unquote, a real childhood. Um, and so, you know, there's sort of that like traumatic element to it. But, um, you know, I, I and also, yeah, you know, I I. I learned a lot about writing prose from kids books, especially like Harold and the Purple Crayon, which I reference explicitly um, in the book, um, which is such a like I just reread it the other day. And it's just like so brilliant, right? Like it's so it's so simple. Um, but like this, but as the woman even says in the book, right, like that kind of simplicity is really hard right like there there is a level of artistry um, to 
boiling something down to its most essential elements um, enough for all ages to comprehend what's being said, right? That's just really, really hard to pull off. Um, and I and I started sort of, you know, the more the more kids' book that I read, the more I realized um, how uh, what a prize clarity is, right? And like, you know, I look, I love like. Garth Greenwell and, and Susan Choi and, and sentences with so many clauses that you have to read them again to figure out what the hell's going on, right? Um, but you know, when it came down to it, uh, what what attracted me about writing and and what sort of was important to go into the book explicitly was the kind of um, you know sort of less is more thing. Mm -hmm. Um. And, and I do feel like another angle on children's literature right now, unfortunately, is that so many books that are can can teach kids about the world, perhaps, are being banned. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 there's a book banners want to bring the shame back. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about shame in your novel and and its complexities because that this is not a, a very um straightforward uh, kids book answer <laughs> yeah you know um the rendering of shame I, I find very very interesting when it's done in fiction um and um you know like i mentioned garth greenwell earlier and he's one who just does it really really well and um leopoldine core is another author who i wish more people would read um she mm. the way that she handles shame um you know especially in women um you know the the dichotomy between shame and shamelessness uh is really really compelling and so yeah, you know, like um, I struggled with it because on the one hand, like as a queer author, like you kind of don't want to tell a story about shame, right? Because like, you don't want it to be like, oh, you know, this girl's ashamed of her identity. Like that's the thing, right? We all are, we're just, we're just shame, you know, just full of shame all the time. Um, but I, so, but, you know, ultimately to ignore shame entirely would have been disingenuous, right? Like that's, that is something we all feel, right? Whether, whether we display it in certain ways or not. Um, and so it became about trying to figure out how shame works as um, a, a plot propeller, right? And so for me, like, you know, there's sort of two levels of shame, right? There, I think that there's, on the one, on one hand, there's shame, um that's uncontrollable right and this shame comes from you know uh external views of yourself and 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 who society thinks you are and should be and wants you to be right and and so queer people have no control over you know how they're going to be perceived right they you know that it just sort of like you know um Queerness is eye. Queerness uh, is in the eye of the straight beholder, right? Um, and so, then you know. So, how does that work as as um, a vehicle to get sort of story going? And I think that when when people feel uncontrollable shame, um, a lot of times, especially younger people, um, sort of seek out ways to to work out uh, to, to do shameful things, right. There's some, there feels like something that like 
is 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 compelling to sort of um, to to act in a way that in in such a way that shame is controllable, right? And so you know, like uh, on the one hand, Mallory can't you know um, you know she's she's not the most beautiful girl ever, and and you know at being being a, a non beautiful girl is is a shame in and of itself, and and being queer, of course, um, there's a lot of shame there, and having um, a dead parent is 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 and shameful in some ways, right? Where especially when most of your peers uh, have parents who are both alive, right? Um, but those are shames that you just can't control, right? And so I think then, like, um, it seems to me, especially like in fiction, you know, where um, a character would sort of use that shame as a jumping off point, um, almost as an excuse to do like things that they know they're not supposed to do mm -hmm. right to do shameful things um not that her relationship with the woman is shameful but it's but it's not great you know it's not like a thing that would be encouraged <laughs> um you know and and i think that that her that the relationship is is her is Mallory's way, um, and even the woman's way of balancing these sort of um, uncontrollable shames uh, versus, like you know, the shames that we have uh, control over. I love that. Um, I I also like the idea, and this is a very teenage idea, I think, um, that that well anytime anyone wallows i feel like it's so satisfying um I, especially like when you have a good playlist and you like this this feeling of melancholy but one of the things that mallory really struggles with is what if sadness is part of her identity if not like you know in, in her teenage mind maybe it's the whole thing yeah say more <laughs> yeah no um I think I think it's great to point that out right um you know I guess I guess that's part of you know um it is it is a teenager thing to do right like to sort of I think that's why a lot of people of, of my generation certainly um you know grew up on emo right which is sort of like mm -hmm. you know we were the, we were the emo kids um and I guess like Tumblr people now would be like the Lana Del Rey generation, right? <laughs> or or whoever the the new Lana Del Rey is. And um, I am part of the Fiona Apple generation, so right, I right. I mean, there's a very straight line from Fiona <laughs> Apple to uh, Lana Del Rey. Um, you know, you and I both spent uh, way too much time on Tumblr, so you know, <laughs> you are, you and I are the the Tumblr sad girls, right? Um, but I think that. Um, you know, for for Mallory, like um, there's there's a there's a compelling aloneness to sadness, right? Um, uh, which I think of the um, like uh, the pleasing egotism of grief. I would mm. say, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you know, like how how fucking good does it feel sometimes to just sit alone in a dark room? you know, not talking to anybody and just think about nothing else but how shitty you feel, right? Like that, like there are very few purely 
satisfying experiences as as you said wallowing right that's why we wallow because uh, I mean it just feels good like in the moment right um and I think that a lot of times sadness feels very unique right um there's like that Tolstoyism right you know the yeah um unhappy people are all are unalike you know right um and and so um I think that th that for 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 girls like Mallory, for people like Mallory, for kids, uh, I mean, even I'm I'm in my 30s now, and I still feel this way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, where it's just sort of like there's like, uh, and you know, Mallory spent so much time as a kid alone, um, and she came to both prize that time alone, but also to sort of decry that time alone, right? Where it started, and, and I think that that was what was interesting uh, for me about Mallory, you know, sort of working out um, when, when, is, when is sadness um, like worth just ruminating on? <laughs> and when is sadness just worth like saying, fuck it, forget it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and so I like the sort of, play with those two things absolutely and that does seem like a spectrum from from girl to womanhood <laughs> yeah for sure right um and, and I think the last thing I want to talk to you about uh before before I ask you for book recommendations yeah is I like the idea that to Mallory this affair is life-changing and of course she will always think about the woman the woman is the woman but tell me about what actually affects one's whole life like you you end the book when um Mallory is is 28 so we don't we don't actually get to see like what she's like um in in her middle ages but, but does the world not end when you're 28 <laughs> But, but but I had a, a suspicion of what was going to happen. Tell me. What was your, what was, I actually kind of want to know what you, what your suspicion was. I feel like with any really intense love affair or any intense heartache, yes, some things about that relationship will stay with you forever. And yet as you mature, you kind of realize that it wasn't the world ending thing, world changing thing that, that you thought it would be. Am I right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I think you're totally right. Um, yeah, you know, I think for, the woman does so much for Mallory, right? Like, and you know, sort of, and this is what sort of adds to, um, the ambiguity of the relationship, right? Where where Mallory, the woman encourages certain facets of Mallory's identity um, that maybe haven't really been encouraged in Mallory before, right? Like this sort of burgeoning sensuality, right? And this sort of um, drive to be an artist and to take art seriously, mm -hmm. right? Those are things that like no one had ever really, um, you know, spoken to her about or encouraged in her. And, you know, um that that's something that the woman does for her right and mm -hmm. and there's a line at the end of the book uh right where where Caroline the the girl her own age who she's going out with uh, I guess woman right she's 28 
question. When do we stop being girls? Well, I don't that's know. a big question. <laughs> yeah. Stuff, right. Right. Um, you know, and she sort of, uh, you know, Mallory kind of uh, maybe a little bittersweetly says um, that the the version of me sitting before you today was is only possible because of her. Right. Um, and I think that that was that's sort of like, um, you know, uh, a lot of people, a lot of people use the phrase formative relationship. And I think that that is true. Right. Where where a lot of what Mallory, a lot of the way Mallory experiences the world and the way, the way she articulates the world to herself and to other people mm -hmm. came right from the woman, right? Um, and obviously that's like a double-edged sword, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, like it's really nice to have the words for something, right? It's really nice to be told um, how you are, right? Like, you know, by other people. But on the other hand, um, that's work that you don't do for yourself, right? That, so, so the work of formation of identity was not something that was sort of available to Mallory in, in that specific relationship, right? And so that's sort of like the catch-22 of, of, of a relationship with such a skewed power dynamic, right? Where it's sort of like, you know, you almost defer to the other person, right? To, to sort of define you, right? And so you don't get to define yourself. Um, you know, and I think that there's, there's, there's positives and negatives to that, you know, especially for somebody who's neurotic, right? Like, like Mallory, who, who would just sort of, you know, um, uh, being asked who you are would send her into sort of an existential spiral, right? Like, as, as I think most of us would answer that question, you know, feeling deep existential despair. Um, but, you know, and so it's comforting, you know, to sort of be able to fall back on, well, who I am is who this woman told me I am. Um, and so, you know, and I think, I think that's what re is really significant about the relationship between Mallory and the woman, right? Where like there's, it's clearly like, you know, and, and it's not to say that she wouldn't have learned those things on her own. Um, you know, but I do think that like the woman, um, at least in that specific case, sort of sped up the process, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better sort of phrasing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Um, Michelle, before we go, please recommend some books for us. Yeah, um, so I guess not to steal my own thunder, but there are quite a lot of books coming out in 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 May that are that are very good. And one that I want to specifically highlight um, is a book called Yerba Buena um, by Nina Lacour. I think Lena Nina Lacour Lacour. I'm not sure how to say her last name. Um, she is she has made a name for herself sort of like as a YA author, mm -hmm. um, and this is like uh, positioned as her first adult. Book. Um, you made yeah, I did. I, uh, I guess it's important to note that I, yes, I mean, I think it is a very adult book. Um, you could also just sort of argue that, you know, like, you know, other her YA books uh, dealt with like suicide and, and stuff that's like a you know, very, um, you know, adult topics. Um, where the line, you know, begins and ends with YA versus, um, adult is just sort of beyond me, I guess. Um, I guess that's why we've created new adult as a category, right? <laughs> to sort of say, oh, it's that, right? 
Um, but Yerba Buena is this really beautiful story um, set over uh, like decades uh, about these sort of two women who just sort of, you know, um, they have really terrible teenage years um, and then they sort of um, meet by chance um, at a restaurant in San Francisco. Um, and, you know, it's sort of, you know, like there's, there's a lot of relief in that relationship, you know, of, of finding someone who's as lost as you, right. And, and, and how nice of a feeling that is, but there's also, you know, um, let's talk about double-edged sword, you know, there's also a sense of like, well, well, both of us are lost, you know, like, uh, you know, um, what do we, what, how, how do we find ourselves, you know, and, and is it, is it possible to do that in, in, um, when no, when neither of you has a sense of who you are, you know, how does a relationship proceed from that point? Um, it's a really, really beautiful story. The prose is gorgeous. Um, I learned a lot about mixology. One of the, one of the characters is a mixologist. Um, and oh, she talks cool. about sort of different, um, you know, kind of, uh, drink combinations. Um, <laughs> it's just Love a really, that. really pretty book, uh, that I would highly recommend. I've also just started, um, one, one other one that I would recommend. Um, I would always recommend the work of Marcy Dermansky. Um, okay. she, I think she's like one of the most undersung, um, you know, writers around. Uh, she's, it's, and she's like, you know, all killer, no filler, right? She's consistently, you know, banging out bangers. Um, and um, I, I was a huge fan of the red car and then Very Nice came out and I was like, that's somehow better than yeah, the red car which is a book that I love yeah um and you know and and so I just started reading Hurricane Girl which is her new book it comes out in June um and it's got that same sort of dry humor the same sort of fucked upness and she's like she's so she's so singularly good at what she does um that like always recommend Marcy Domanski I love that Michelle, thank you so much. I'm really excited for you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.